healthcare, education, real estate, housing, financial services, like things that as society we really care about. You don't have a way to connect to the banking system. You don't have a payment operations software product that exists. The total money moved, it's like 750 trillion a year, like quadrillions of dollars, but just the size of the transactions happening are astronomical. We kind of know how to solve this problem. And so we kind of felt like, hey, we, we have an obligation to go build this because it is going to enable like all these companies to go innovate in housing costs and how payroll runs and how do people get, you know, healthcare. And like, that's something that we, we felt we should just go fix it because somebody has to, nobody has. Welcome to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Banana Capital, the most founder-friendly venture capital. Today, I talked to Dmitry Dadimov, co-founder and CEO of Modern Treasury, an operating system for the new era of payments. We'll start the episode with exactly what that means and also learn about how Dmitry and his co-founders, Aaron and Sam, started the company in 2018. We'll talk about, and this sounds like a fake number, how the banking system moves over $1 quadrillion per year. We also discuss what makes a good API business, Dmitry's experience doing YC, how to find holes in the market for an initial go-to-market strategy how it took six months to land their first customer, why they should have built a sales team sooner, when distribution can be more important than product, going slow to go fast, and finally, what happened inside Modern Treasury during the collapse of SVB and Signature Bank, who they both worked with. Thanks to Chetan at Benchmark and Sam, Chris, and Ani at Modern Treasury for help coming up with questions. And thanks, Dimitri, for coming on. Let's jump in after a short word from SecureFrame. Longtime listeners know SecureFrame is the automated compliance platform built by security experts. Thousands of customers trust SecureFrame to get, stay, and automate their compliance with security and privacy frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 2701, HIPAA, GDPR, and more. They support thousands of your favorite startups like AngelList, Coda, and Ramp. And shout out to Ramp on the recent Series D. I'm an investor in SecureFrame, and I highly recommend it to every founder I meet. Join hundreds of other listeners of the Peel and click the link in the show notes to get started on a demo with SecureFrame's in-house team of compliance experts and former auditors. Thank you, SecureFrame. Second, I just mentioned Ramp's recent fundraise. My friend Nick does growth at Ramp, and he's hooking up listeners of the PL with $500 if they sign up for Ramp using the link in the show notes. I personally use Ramp at BananaCap, and if you're a startup founder looking for a corporate card that automates your finances while also saving money, sign up and grab your free $500. And now... Let's talk to Dimitri at Modern Treasury. So I thought we could kind of kick things off. You guys are in this really interesting market called payment operations. That's kind of how you started the company. Can you explain what that means and why it was worth building a company around? Yeah, totally. You know, before we talk about payment operations, I got to tell you, when you invited me to this podcast, I went and I bought this amazing hoodie with bananas all over it. But unfortunately, it wasn't shipped here in time. So I'm very sad that I'm we're doing this and I'm not wearing the, the John Banana hoodie. We'll, we'll do another episode in a couple months. Sounds good. So payment operations, what Modern Treasury does is build software that is aimed to be the operating system for money movement. So companies that move money and connect to banks, ledger things and keep track and reconcile of everything that happens in their business, we hope to build the best software for that. That is something that we saw up close and personal and we can talk about that. But it's a problem that really exists in, in a lot of different companies and the content almost definitionally for businesses that there's some money moving, but specifically certain types of business 
businesses that are in the flow of funds or they're somehow moving funds through their kind of marketplace or through their financial services offering, they have this problem in a significantly more complicated way than the majority of businesses. And so when you get to higher volumes, you get to higher precision, you get to more kind of errors, it becomes something that you really need software for. And traditionally, a lot of it has been built internally or has been solved with operations teams that are doing things by hand. And so Modern Treasury is trying to help build software for this to make it much easier and simpler to start businesses in those industries. So when you say doing it by hand, that means probably a bunch of spreadsheets and emails and setting up bank wires manually, things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you can just think about it from like a capital call, venture investing, you know, flow perspective, right? Like you've, uh, you log into bank portals, you refresh things, you mark it as complete, you wait for the wire to show up. If you're doing it for one or two, it's not a big deal. But if you're doing it for a thousand a day, you really can't do this by hand anymore. Or maybe you can, but you have to, to hire a large team to do it. And it's not going to be perfect. And so that's where those types of problems arrive. Yeah, I think you gave an example once of Airbnb, where, you know, in theory, you just think, oh, some people staying at houses, it's just the consumer side. But internally, there's a lot that also goes on, too. They're moving money between all their different counterparties, too, right? Oh, for sure. It's, and it's, and it's, it's hundreds of people at Airbnb that are occupied, you know, every day <laughs> building things around this, uh, building and operating, right? So think of every time they somebody goes, you know, from the U.S. to France and goes stays at a, with a, a host in France, you have to basically think through, you know, the payments on both sides. How do you actually move money? How do you think about a foreign exchange? When do you actually move it? When do you release the funds? What if there's an error? Does it bounce? And is there like a problem? And when you when the host inevitably calls the customer service line and says, I've got this problem, I can't see the, the funds, like what is the customer service agent looking at to ascertain whether that's like a real problem or not? But yeah, there's there's all sorts of problems like that that show up and you kind of have to go solve it within, within different teams inside the company. How does engineering team handle this? How does the product team deal with this? How does customer service or how does, you know, finance and accounting, of course, but there's, there's lots of different places where these problems kind of pop up. And there's probably, at least from some of the larger corporations I've worked at, which weren't even that big, they might have tens or hundreds of different bank accounts too. And then there's a bunch of different spreadsheets for each, you know, each customer might have a spreadsheet or each division or country or segment or all of those different segments in each country has its own. So pretty complicated. There's somebody somewhere that knows exactly how those spreadsheets are operated. And if you don't, if you lose that person, now the whole company doesn't know anymore because it's, you know, saved in Excel 2013 and uh, a file on somebody's computer. You've probably seen that one meme recently where it's like a crab holding something up and it's like Microsoft Excel. It's like world financial system. Have you seen that one? Yeah, for sure. It's true. People talk about how Microsoft is like not in a, not a fintech company. It's like, I don't know about that. The entire financial system runs on Excel. <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty crazy. Almost how undermined monetized Excel is in a way because you pay, I don't know, 10 bucks, 20, 30 bucks a month, whatever the number is per user, but it's like supporting the back end or was historically for a lot of businesses. It's kind of wild. Totally. And the complexity of Excel, I mean, Excel is such an amazing product because you can use it for like a to-do list or you can use it to build the most complicated sort of macro with 47 tabs and, you know, running all the way through like 2,500 if you really wanted to. And, and people do. So mm. it's, it's pretty amazing. I think that's something that as a product, I think good products, especially good kind of 
business kind of B2B product, you know, should aspire to have this range of use cases where somebody who's a total noob can start using it without a whole lot of explanation. And I think that's a really good thing. But also you can get, you can become a master of it, right? Like when people get certifications in like certain types of software, like in, in a way it's like, well, maybe your software is so complicated. You you now need to like <laughs> go to school to be able to do this uh, yeah. well. But on the other hand, like there is that complexity that this product actually can do so much that's different. Yeah, I think I've seen numbers thrown around. The total money moved, the volume is, it's like a fake number. It's like 750 trillion a year, like one, it's like quadrillions of dollars, the volume. And obviously a company that does a billion dollars in revenue might be moving a couple billion, all these different transactions. So when you think about the scale, it's probably one of the biggest I don't, I don't know how you actually size the market in terms of what kind of revenue gets generated from that, but just the size of the, the transactions happening are astronomical. You know, money moved is not necessarily revenue to to the company, right? So if you think about a company that is in the, like a payroll company would be a perfect example. The payroll company moves a lot of money where they literally, you know, all the salaries get moved maybe twice, right? From the company to the payroll company and then from the payroll company's accounts to the tax agencies and benefits accounts and the employees and everything. That's a perfect example where that company moves orders, many orders of magnitude more dollars than, you know, their revenue. But it's it's like a daily problem for them. And like it costs money to support money movement, right? Like, like you said, you generally need a team. The bigger you get, the more money you're moving. You might have hundreds of people which that gets pretty expensive. This is something that you realize once you kind of uh, are in any industry for a while, you get better with scale and with seeing more versions of it. I think this is one of these things that, you know, historically has been a really kind of problematic thing for web companies because, you know, web companies, this is something that we saw at Lending Home. So we were working on this website, kind of website that talked to the financial system in a mortgage context. So we were funding wires to fund mortgages. We we're collecting ACHs every month to kind of bring in the, the repayments. And we had to build this whole thing from scratch, which was connected to, to the bank that we were working with. And it was really hard. And I remember one of the things that's kind of set us down the bond and treasury path has really been that, you know, we realized there was like this very kind of horizontal problem that existed across a lot of different websites and companies, which also like really matters. Like if you actually think about what has been going on in like the web and innovation world. Uh, there's all these startups that have been going after things that initially when the web kind of started, like it was all about paying and buying something with a credit card from like a checkout page. So these are consumer solutions, essentially. Right. It was basically things like, you know, travel, right? Expedia started with travel and Amazon started with buying a book for, you know, 30 bucks or something. Netflix started with entertainment. Those types of things are kind of this like, you know, 20 to $100 transaction is probably their average transaction. You do that over a credit card, it was painful at the time, right? Like if you go back to, you know, the the, the late 90s or 2000s, like all these companies have to figure that out by themselves and figure out how to build. And obviously there's companies like Adyen and Braintree and Stripe that have now been built to solve that problem. So you don't have a problem with, with credit cards. And one of the things that we've seen also as a result, I'm sure you've probably seen those charts where the like level of inflation in those kind of consumer goods things has come down. Those things are like buying a TV or going on a trip has become cheaper over time. And the things that have gotten more expensive are the things that you pay for using ACH wire and check. So they're like healthcare, education, real estate, housing, financial services, things that as society we really care about. And so I remember like one of the things that we realized when we were at kind of working this problem on mortgages at Lending Home was like, whoa, there's, we kind of know 
how to solve this problem. And a lot of companies should be built to fix the problems that exist in all these sectors just mentioned. But there's like this giant boulder. Like if you think about like this highway or whatever, there's a giant boulder that sends traffic the other way because it's just hard to get started. And like there's an additional tax on getting started. You can't have it. Like you don't have a way to connect to the banking system. You don't have a payment operations software product that exists and makes it easy for these companies to get going. And so we kind of felt like, hey, we have an obligation to go build this because actually it is going to enable all these companies to go innovate in how much, you know, housing costs and how payroll runs and how do people get, you know, healthcare. And like, that's kind of, you know, a really cool aspect of modern treasuries that we help enable companies that do the things that we society really care about. And they go build web startups. Like we all, you know, as founders, like we all love web startups. Like a good a good startup story is, is an amazing thing. And there's just not enough of those in some of these uh, areas that I just mentioned. So anyway, that's kind of a long answer that maybe you wanted. But but that's something that we we felt like we should just go fix it because somebody has to, nobody has. And it's going to be taxing on all the all the founders who want to try to build companies in those in those segments. Yeah, and, and you kind of fixed it sort or you kind of built some solutions inside of lending home or at least got super, super familiar with them, right? Yeah, we had to go build it kind of from scratch, but we got familiar with the problem set for sure. And it was really interesting. Uh you all your co-founders, there's three co-founders, Modern Treasury, you, Matt, and Sam, you all started on the exact same day, right? Yeah, we started the same day. Um, it was kind of, it was a little bit coordinated between Sam and I. So Sam and I joined to kind of start a new product. And it was something that the founders of Lending Home wanted to build as part of the PowerPoint when they were pitching the company, but they never kind of got around to building it. The company was probably about 75 people at the time. So Sam and I joined uh, on the same day on, on kind of on by design, because we were starting this retail investing part of, of the product. And so we were building, so so Lending Home was originating mortgages, they're funding these fix and flip loans to people who were buying a property, renovating it and selling it after like six or 12 months. And that was the market. They're still now kind of the largest dominant player in that market. And I should mention Lending Home rebranded as Kiavi. So it's it's known as Kiavi now. But in in back then, one of the ways in which these loans would then get sold to investors um, was really kind of in, in spreadsheets to large portfolio kind of investors, hedge funds and the like. There was this idea of like letting individuals go and invest. I mean, think Angela style, you know, how do you actually kind of fractionalize and allow people, individuals to invest in like a smaller fraction and build a portfolio of these properties and loans and stuff. So that was what we had started. Um, so Sam and I built this website. It was kind of like an e-commerce shopping cart that allowed people to kind of log in and basically buy like $1,000 or $5,000 or some small percentage of a mortgage, which is usually, you know, 300K, 500K, million dollars. And then, but the thing is, these are all fix and flip properties. So every one of these properties has water damage or a bad kitchen or there's some problem with it. So when we built the website, it basically, we jokingly would call it ugly Airbnb. You log into Airbnb and like, instead of it being like this amazing photo, it's like, look, there was like a very, very small fire and we can like <laughs> cover it up really quickly and add a lot of value and, and, and sell it, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's, that was kind of the, the retail investing product. And obviously from a, from a money movement perspective, as soon as we fractionalized the loan, like think about you own $2,000 of this like $200,000 mortgage. So now 1% of every payment that comes back once a month and the first of the month, we now have to do this like fraction math from like sixth grade and say, oh, well, two over 200 times the $3,000 payment you now have to move that money into your account. You have like a wallet. 
And then you can decide if you want to reinvest it or you want to withdraw it or, mm. or what. It very quickly, just the number of transactions ballooned and we had people coming to us from the finance and accounting and other capital markets, other parts saying like, what is this payment? What happened? Kind of highlighting a statement in yellow. And yeah, that was the beginning of... That was the beginning of us getting obsessed with these problems of like, how do you do this in a simple way? Yeah. And and this, it it was sort of like a B2B type product or solution, but you were almost dealing with like the consumer level payments where it was one loan, there was a hundred individuals that are 1%. There was hundreds of these loans. You have thousands, tens of thousands of hundred dollar $300 $300 wires. Yeah, we were doing, I want to say about 70,000 transactions a month when we left. So, you know, that's a lot. That's a long statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so an interesting question that I'm wondering, how did you know that like all three of you as, as co-founders that you worked well together and that you wanted to take this journey? Because obviously you just told us how you came up with the idea, but how did you decide these were the right people to go on this journey with? Yeah, it's a good question. It's kind of an emergent thing. I mean, we, we worked together for three years. Sam and I literally worked together every single day for those three years. Like we were, yeah. we were kind of working on the same project. Matt was working on more kind of the borrower facing piece of, of lending home. So he was, he was around, but weren't working very closely, um, uh, in the same way, but we, you know, became very good friends and would go skiing together and, and so on. So I think it was a combination of seeing the problem, realizing kind of how it's like something that we wanted to work on. And then I think feeling like, these are people I would be excited to work with kind of every day for, you know, what could be a very long time. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of how for me. And then, of course, there's complementary skill sets as well. Like I was I was a product manager, Sam, uh, Sam and Matt were engineers. Sam was working more on the kind of back end and the bank integration pieces, uh, although he's incredibly talented across the board. And then Matt was working a little more on the front end piece. And so Matt is uh, our chief product officer now. He's, he's more focused on product than on writing code. But, you know, in the early days, he wrote a lot of code in the first, I don't know, 18 months of the, uh, I think for a while he was still the number one person by lines of code submitted. And mm-hmm. I think he just recently lost that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, that was something that uh, we all felt like it worked well. We saw the problem together. We wanted to kind of work together and it was just easy. Okay. And then, so I think you said you were there for about three years and then okay, I think it was Sam said that it was January of 2018. He came to you with a crazy idea, wanted to start a bank. And what was your reaction? I was like, not very interested. Why not? It just sounds hard and it doesn't sound like something we know anything about. I think I have um, a lot of respect for banks. Uh, that maybe sounds weird for like a fintech founder to say, but I, mean, I just think banking is a very complicated business. It's a very large business. I mean, there's 3,000 banks in the U.S. And all of them, while it's easy for tech people to say, oh, they're all kind of the same, a wire is a wire and like a loan is a loan. That's actually not true at all. When you look at every one of those banks has some strategy around it of who they want to go after, who they want to be the best customer for. Maybe it's geographic. Maybe it's a se- kind of a segment. Maybe it's an industry. You know, we can talk about that, but, but it's very hard. Even, you know, Bank of America, like the dominant banks, they don't have that big of a market share. Uh, in in most of these, and I think the reason for it is because it's just such a big industry, and it's and it's hard to do well. So the idea of of starting a bank, obviously, people have done it, and it's fascinating to watch, and some of them will succeed. But I just didn't have a lot of interest in that. I think uh, mm. it's very like heavy regulatory burden. You have to think about, you have to hire a lot of compliance and lawyers. And what I thought we knew was like the tech part of it. So yeah. I remember my reaction was like, no, I don't want to do that. But like, let's just entertain you for a second, Sam. Like if you had an, if you had a bank, like what is, what even compels you to say that? <laughs> what is the problem you're trying to solve? And, you know, we started digging in and, and a lot of, at the time, a lot of it was kind of focused around like 
API access and how do you get developers and, and, and product people to be able to connect to banking services in a mm. better way, which is like a very, very thin, you know, it's an, inf- an infinitesimally thin part of what a bank is. <laughs> um, and I told him like, well, why don't, maybe we could just like do that as a product. Let's dig into that and think about that. And yep. then you realize, oh, wait a second, like most companies of any scale actually work across different banks. So even if you solved it as one, a single bank, and it doesn't actually solve the problem the CFO and the CTO of that company have. They have a problem, which is how do I connect to my seven banks hmm. or to my 30 banks? And so any one of those banks having a better connectivity set, it doesn't really help. This is not really solve the problem. And I think this is something that is the power, I think, of being hyper-focused as for us now as modern treasury. Like we are a software company. We have zero ambition to be a bank. We've obviously from the very beginning, <laughs> that's been true. Um, <laughs> And and we have zero ambition to somehow focus on a certain industry or something like that. We want to be this general infrastructure kind of software product. And going back to the conversation we we're having earlier about Excel, like I admire that about Excel, that people use it for very different use cases. Yeah, so my reaction to Sam was... No, you don't know anything about starting a bank. I certainly don't know anything about starting a bank. I don't want to speak for Sam, but I don't really want to start a bank. But like, why? Like, what compels you to say that? And then let's isolate that and then try to figure out if that's a thing. And then, you know, very quickly we realize there is a functionality product there that is missing. We would have bought it at Lending Home if we had it available to us in 2015. This was now 2018. We had built a, a small version of it in a situation where it's very hard to argue for resources because it's not like your core product. So you're kind of always going and saying, no, no, we totally should not launch a new state and actually start you know, selling to, to, to new attracting borrowers and do all the things that your business is actually doing. Like, no, it's like, no, you know what I want to do? Like, we really want to get really good at reconciliation of ACH. That's never going to be like the first board deck, you know, product slide. <laughs> but it's really important. Like it's it's core to the smooth operations of a company. So you actually have to do that. So anyway, that that was kind of the the conversation that Sam and I were having when he first came to me with this idea. And so is that what makes a good API or maybe just like a broader software product where it just solves like a operational headache that maybe saves you money or resources and allows you to focus on what you do well? Is that a way to think about it? I think it's a great way to think about it. I think there's even a funny maybe way to frame it, which is if you can build software that can do a job, like an actual job, if you can find a job description that somebody's hiring for that says, do this for me, then probably a lot of people will do that. (laughs) So one of the things that we did early on as like a growth hack is searching for job descriptions that said the word ACH in them. Because ACH came up in the 1970s. That was like, you know, nobody's innovating uh, really at company, at like startup companies on ACH. Like all you're doing, if if you say the word engineer in the heading and then say the word ACH somewhere in the body of the job description, what you're saying is you have to make an integration to an ACH connection. That is basically it. That is a very good giveaway that like you have a problem, you as a company have this issue or this problem that mm-hmm. you want to solve. You know, I think most people don't have a strong view on how to solve it. Like if there is a software product that does the job for you, great, you do this. At, at what point you guys applied to YC, went through YC, when did you decide like, all right, we're lending home is great. We learned a lot. We're going to start this company. Was there, was there a moment? Uh, we had a bunch of friends that we were kind of just like talking to about this idea and just like testing it. And 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 some of them had been YC founders. And they said, well, why don't you use the YC application as like a forcing function to clarify your thinking? So, you know, we we definitely were getting a little bit more serious about doing this as a company. And I would encourage anybody who thinks about an idea to like use the YC application, whether you apply or not, doesn't matter. But the YC application itself is just like a good forcing function of like, can you decide? still this 
in a couple of sentences, can you distill the customer types? Who do you sell to? What would you do if you had 90 days? Like, what would you actually do to advance this idea forward? They're very like clarifying, simple questions. So anyway, we we applied and I guess it was would have been like April or something. This is 2018. And, you know, we got an interview and we interviewed and we got it. And then, I mean, it was very clear that we wanted, like, we just got more and more confidence as we went through the process because we met more companies that would sort of smile and nod and be like, oh yeah, like, well, I don't know if we'd be customers today because we're already kind of built it, but boy, would yeah, I yeah. do I wish we didn't have to. And so we we got to meet more and more people who gave us other ideas. You realize this is one of these problems that has different flavors to it. There's different problems that come up as soon as you're doing payments at scale. And we had some of those at Lending Home, but like Lending Home wasn't international. It was domestic only. So like there was a certain set of problems that just didn't even exist. And so anyway, we kind of kept discovering new problems as we were going along. And mm-hmm. it just felt like such a rich area, both in terms of impact and, and ability to help certain companies that we thought mattered, but also a rich area in terms of things to build and additional new products to add. And, you know, I still feel this way today. That was kind of, was giving us more and more confidence. And I think that if we'd gone through the process and we were like, realized that it's actually like smaller and like less real than we thought, we maybe wouldn't have pursued it. But as, as it unfolded, we realized like, this is actually bigger than we thought, not smaller. And that's really interesting that you say that because I can't remember if it was Chris on your team or Sam who specifically mentioned, it took you guys a while to sign your first customer. And YC, like you said, 90 days, it's usually there's kind of a forcing function built on the people want they start paying you for it like so what happened throughout yc you never pivoted can you talk about that so we got into yc we started you know corporate the company we um in i guess may may i think may or june and we started building i mean so on the one hand we kind of had a good idea of what it was that we were trying to build so we started kind of working out of my apartment sam mad would come over every day and we would just basically be writing writing code, writing our APIs, right, starting the app, doing all the things that would be required to put like an MVP in somebody's hands and actually have them use a product. Simultaneously, we were kind of, uh, we did this exercise that I think is really useful to basically write down like all the things that pe- that we needed to do as, as like a founding team. And we put, of the three of us, we put on one of the, each one of them was said, who's the primary, who's the secondary, and who doesn't matter. And so we basically decided, like, this was really like helped us kind of move faster. So as an example, Sam and Matt, Sam was, you know, Sam's the CTO. He's the primary on all technical decisions. Matt was secondary and I didn't matter. So they could decide whether they wanted to work on AWS or Google Cloud or, you know, like without me having anything to add to that discussion. Mm. You know, so one of the things that um, Sam and I were kind of primary secondary on is, is the bank side. And so we spent a lot of time with the, on working with banks, getting to know banks, opening bank accounts, building our connectivity from our corporate kind of account uh, to this. And that was like really important for us to get to the point where we could feel like, okay, we actually, if you signed up, like we've actually done the work, we're going to go start doing this like right after <laughs> the uh, yeah. the contract was signed. Yep. Um, and then, you know, Matt and I were working on a lot of the customer side. So we're talking to companies, understanding their problems, seeing like where, where use cases were similar, different, and who's kind of had the most pain and the most like heat about this. And so uh, we spent a lot of time talking to customers. We had a lot of people who basically were smiling and nodding and saying this would totally be a thing that I would buy in some theoretical world where it was like four years ago. But no, I don't, I don't need an answer thing. Uh, And by the way, the other piece is money movement is such a core piece of your business that it's like hard to convince somebody to be the first customer of a startup, right? And I think that's true for all infrastructure companies. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a certain staying power to keep coming back and show a little bit more progress and kind of convince people. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, we were getting together in YC every every week with our kind of cohort of companies. And they all had a beautiful graph that went up into the right and then went from four to 10 to 30 of whatever unit they were 
looking at. We were just like, ah, we open another bank account. And they're yeah. like, that's not, that's not, that doesn't sound <laughs> like progress to most companies. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. count. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So we we ended up, you know, going through demo day with no customers. Uh, like we never got a customer during YC. We raised our seed round. We didn't have a customer. We kept going. And it took us about three months after YC that a friend of mine who I went to business school with, and he was starting a company that was in the healthcare space, you know, became our first customer, which we're very grateful to because, I, you know, I think in B2B companies in particular, like the founders kind of get a lot of credit and the first investors get credit. And like the first customers who put this whole castle in the air, like mm. into, into, into like a real business. <laughs> um, so the first customer is really, really important. So Sano Benefits, the company that uh, shout out to Will, they were our first customer. Customer, they're still a customer today. They've grown a lot, but it, it was a good, it was a very good validation that we we're able to get them up and running with SVB as their first bank that we're supporting. And that was about six months after we started the company. Interesting. And I think YC maybe suggested, hey, do something else. Is that true? Yeah. YC does that. Well, first of all, YC will probably suggest that to every company. I mean, YC is very good at pushing you a little bit on your beliefs or assumptions or like resolve. Try to understand like how how dedicated are you to this? Do you really like, have you really thought out through all the different elements? So I think that's something that, that YC does in, in general for a lot of companies. But yeah, for sure, for us, I mean, it's like we would just show up and there's like zero parent measures of success that we can point to. And so- yeah. You know, if you do that for a week or two or three, but 12 weeks later, it's like, well, are you guys actually in a different place? And we were like, yeah, we're a totally different place because we now have a product that works. We can show it, it. It moves money. We connect to the bank. All these things that are that like have to be true on the path to success. But it just wasn't. I mean, because it was a longer thing to build. And even like looking back now, like six months isn't like that crazy long of a time to start something that's fairly big and heavy. And a lot of it is because we already knew like how this kind of worked from from having built something similar to Lenny Home. So it wasn't like we were discovering and understanding it from from scratch. We have this picture of. Sam, when he got his uh, his 2018 Nacha manual, it's this 600-page book that is just you know, like all the different like edge cases and things that you have to understand in order to know how this product works. When we got our YC check, it was like the first thing that we bought and then it showed up three weeks later. And there's this picture of Sam like being super happy, like immeasurably happy that he's got this manual that is... Um, but again, like we needed to go through that in order to build the product that we then eventually, you know, deployed and, and sold. Okay, and Nacha is the national ACH association or something. Yeah, automated is, clearing house. Yeah, yeah, so it's just like money movement <laughs> rules. And, and that's probably the, the opportunity for the company, I think is what Sam said. You guys basically codified the whole book. You took all these different rules and all these things that were outlined in there and basically built software that would just do it. Yeah, and we would tra- and we translated a lot of these signals that were like they're already they're already codified they're codified in the book. <laughs> yeah. But they were not in a, you know, modern kind of day API said they weren't very like there wasn't web hooks that would just notify you if something failed. And so basically what ended up happening was um, every one of these companies that had to go build to this, like had to build that from scratch. Mm-hmm. And and you discover one of the pain points is either you can read the book and you can actually discover every single edge case. So what happens if this payment gets disputed by the by the receiver? What happens if you ACH a dead person? <laughs> that was like an early story that we we uh, Matt Marcus put together this uh, this post that went to like number one on Hacker News because it's just like one of these like weirdly morbid morbid things that people on Hacker News are going to be interested in. The, the intersection of morbid and nerdy is like a, a good place to start. But anyway, like the, all those types of things, a lot of times companies will build kind of haphazardly and then they discover every one of those because there's like a ticket coming in from customer success being like this was a problem. Uh, a customer called and this is not working. 
that's like a bad customer experience. It's a bad, it's like inefficient. Everybody's wasting time. You know, we, we codified all that and built it in a way that you can just, you know, deploy in a day and like never think about it again. Mm. And so that is something that's, I think, pretty important. But yeah, that's where, that's where that book was really important for us to have early on. I'm curious, and this is also a question from Chathan at Benchmark one of your board members, he said, we just need to talk about just how deep you guys went, which we're kind of in the middle of right now. How did the product kind of evolve? Was it mostly customer feedback? A lot of it is is watching, talking to customers and writing code. That's how that's how products evolve. So we talked to a lot of customers and saw adjacent problems. So that has been a lot of the evolution. Um, and the initial set we talked about, it's this payment API that was codifying the different types of payments that a bank might have. So th- that includes ACH, wires, paper checks, more recently, RTP and FedNow are these like real-time payment methods. But basically anything that the bank is going to offer uh, and is going to offer programmatically to a company that does this at, at, at bigger scale, we want to have uh, a good set of tools. And it's not just API, it's also things like dev portals and logging and all the audits, all the things that that people might want to have as they actually deploy this and, and get up and running. So that's that was kind of product number one. Now, one way to think about is really like what other problems show up when you as a, a, a company start moving a lot of money? Well, the first one is pretty obvious, which is like, you should probably track it. <laughs> you should probably track, uh, you know, all this, all the, all these flows of funds that you're doing. And so that takes the form of ledgers. Ledgers is our kind of second product that was a standalone kind of product. And it's really a database that helps with tracking of a ledger. It could be money movement. That mostly is what it is. But you could use it for something like loyalty points, rewards points, things like that. But really, every time that money moves, you should really record it. You should keep track of it. You should have an audit log of that. We probably were like two years old. When we started Ledgers, we'd th- we've been thinking about it for a while and we started feeling like, okay, there's a good customer set that uh, within, within our, as a subset of our payments customers, there's a lot of people that need Ledgers and like really wish we had it already. <laughs> and so we built it. ClassPass was our first customer on Ledgers. So they have, you know, 80,000 plus studios globally. And like every time you go to a class at one of those studios, they decrement an account balance, increment a, a studio balance. There's may or may not be a money movement actually associated with that at that moment, but like you need to track it. Oh man, that sounds even more complicated. No money movement, but you still have to track. Certainly. Yeah. A lot of companies now are very focused on wallets and closed loop systems and things like that. Yep. And that is that is literally what that a closed loop system is. There's not it, there's the transfer that happens that everybody's kind of aware of and can see in their account balance and whatever app. But mm-hmm. it actually doesn't have a transfer in the U.S. banking system that is uh, similar to that is like the same. Right. It's not one to one. And so maybe you're net settling it every once in a while. Another common problem that you would have is, oh, like. Uh, the bank is asking me for all this compliance stuff and I need to do KYC and KYB and all these types of things. So we added the the, the capacity to add a counterparty, add, you know, do kind of the, the, this KYC piece to it, to identity and be able to store that, all that, have the case management system for if something happens, like where does it pop up? So that was compliance. Recently, we added a capability to like push the data warehouse, for example. Again, once you have a lot of data, you are going to want to be able to push that data into something like, you know, Snowflake or Databricks or Redshift or, or something like that. And so mm-hmm. having all these things out of the, ready out of the box is, is valuable. So that's another piece that we've added. So, and then maybe like just to most recently, the, the most recent thing we added is we call the reconciliation engine, really building recon around everything that happens in your bank account is something that's really valuable. So when you think about uh, being able to see in real time 
what is happening in in the product, in the bank account? Um, how do you actually get a snapshot without having to do month close, without having to have people kind of go and manually like assign categories and things like that? It happens at every company. And so uh, so we, we've, we've kind of built a lot of these pieces into our both API and app so that you can kind of get moving with this with this kind of operating system for money movement vision. And when you have an additional problem and you're like, oh, I wish I had a data warehouse connection. Oh, I wish I could track this stuff. It's right there, an app that is ready to go. Interesting. That was actually one of my my first, uh, I guess, second corporate internship. It was like corporate accounting. I just did a bank reconciliations, I don't know, 20 hours a week. I blocked that yep. period from my there life. There you go. But yeah, it was interesting. It was like good exposure to just how complicated it's dr- it all it's is. It's drudgery. It's drudgery. Computers should do this. Yeah. Computers are actually pretty good at this, but we just did, haven't invested in kind of the tooling and the connectivity for this stuff. And so like we have, we have, I don't know, college interns, high school interns, whatever, whatever you are, like yeah. going and spending 20 hours a week doing basic math and categorization. Yeah. And it's so interesting, the math of accounting, it's pretty simple. Like it's like, oh, you add $3,429.86 plus this other random number. It's easy to do that, but there might be rules about when you add things, you have to find these different pieces, link them together. It's more rules-based. Time is a really interesting uh, aspect of it, right? There's all the cruels of like, where it's like, oh, well, we spent like $100 today, but actually it's like over the next 12 months, we're going to recognize like $8 of it, you know, every month. That was always a nightmare. You talked about there was not good timing initially with some of these people who built this, but you kind of started finding a bunch of customers. Like, was there a weird timing shift where suddenly everyone was kind of ready for it? Or was it just new startups being creative? How did that kind of play out? I don't think that it was like a timing. There's more, there's probably more startups being created in that period of 2018, 19, 20. There was a little bit more money in the venture ecosystem. Uh, founders probably got a bit more ambitious. And so people started doing startups that were not kind of DTC e-commerce things. They were actually kind of moving into these old school industries. And so you start seeing payroll companies uh, that were startups that would offer payroll services. There's going to be like Gusto that did that before, but they're kind of more unique. All of a sudden, there was a little bit more of that. There was companies that were innovating Lexana and, and health insurance, which, you know, would, would be nobody's, uh, you know, top top uh, three choices for a startup area. But it, you know, there was all of a sudden more willingness to kind of try things in that. Again, I think it's a combination of founder ambition and 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 willingness to fund from from VCs. But yeah, so I think there was like an element of there's more companies that were moving into those sectors and they all basically were encountering the problems that we saw mm-hmm. at Lending Home. And there we were. Uh, and sometimes we would get uh, introductions. We did a lot of content. So we'd get try to get people to, you know, when they Googled the, <laughs> some of these kind of ACH error codes, like we want to be in the top places uh, online. But also yeah. when they talked to the banks that they were trying to work with and said, how would they actually get going? Sometimes the banks would say, hey, you know, like a lot of our clients have used Modern Treasury. It's a good, go check it out. Maybe it helps you. And our pitch to some of those kind of companies just getting started, it's really less about efficiency because they don't have volume yet. They don't have the problem. Their problem is a lot more engineering heavy, right? So it's like, how do I approach this and how do I automate this? And how do I how do I focus on my actual business and not make this problem go away? But also at the same time, keep it clean and keep uh, all of my finances kind of uh, in, in good shape. And so that's something that, um, you know, we sold into a lot of those types of companies. Uh, and then over time, kind of scale into bigger companies that maybe do have those efficiency problems. And they're actually thinking about moving around 
some of the ways in which they're doing things across different teams or geographies or banks or things like that. But it was a lot of it came from companies that were, uh, and many of them have grown a bunch, and many of them are like uh, you know customers of ours today, and they're not three people, they're 300 people, and that's like super cool to see. And then two, to your point, with having an expanded product suite, it's probably easier to go to a large company and say, hey, we're not just doing this one thing and you still have to be sick. It's everything. Like you can actually replace right. us smoothly-ish without interrupting too much. Yeah. And I think the wedge, the wedge product can be different at different stages. I mean, I think, um, yeah, like the early, er, earlier companies, we end up talk, spending a lot of time with the product and engineering teams because they're really just building the product mm. and they maybe don't even have a finance team at that point. Uh, you know, and then when you're talking about companies in the hundreds of thousands of employees, I mean, they definitely have a finance team. Mm. And sometimes, uh, they're, they're sort of burdened by a lot of volume, a lot of fast growth, things like that, that make them look around for solutions to doing things in a little bit less manual ways. Yeah. And you had a really interesting point where you talked about making content and people would find it. Both Sam and Chris both mentioned you guys leaned into this product-led growth PLG approach and you found that it didn't work that well in a lot of cases. A lot of people talk about how great PLG is. Can you just kind of talk about what you guys experienced there and then what ended up working at the end of the day? Yeah. I'm not sure that I would articulate as PLG didn't work. I just think it wasn't, it didn't work for the full customer set of the customers that we wanted. You know, there was uh, companies like Twilio were sort of the darling uh, back in 2019, 20 of every every investor. And 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 one of the things that people would associate us with, they're like, oh, this is, are you guys building Twilio for banking? That sounds valuable and that yeah. sounds good. We kind of would like look at each other and be like, are we like, what what is Twilio for banking? Like, maybe, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, nothing against Twilio just didn't quite there's no carriers in banking, so I'm not sure exactly what that meant. Anyway, the um, the thing that was really different is Twilio uh, has this like well-known PLG motion around somebody, a developer in a company that is a thousand people has to go like build something that sends a text message. And they will use that and they'll kind of bake it in. And all of a sudden they come back and they're like, oh, wow, we're sending a lot of text messages. Like, you know, like we should really be like an enterprise customer because it's kind of grew, grew like a weed inside of that product. And there's companies like Uber being like a, a famous example. You know, they send a lot of text messages as they grow quickly. So if you kind of translate into the world of payments and banking, if you as a developer are sending out a lot of wires, somebody's going to come and ask some questions. Like <laughs> that is <laughs> like, that's not, it doesn't work. Like that isn't actually, it's just a different product. Yep. You really have to, uh, it, it's a little bit more of like a kind of top down sale in the sense that like you have to get the CFO or the CEO or whoever to kind of like approve this <laughs> and like go connect to the bank and be able to close the books on it. And there's just a lot more kind of that goes into that. And so we built, uh, we spent a lot of time in 2019 really improving our product and, mm. uh, and which, which it absolutely did, trying to make it faster to get started with, trying to understand how do we get somebody to uh, get them to the point where like, they're making their first, whether it's transfer, reconciliation, whatever it might be, um, as soon as possible uh, to kind of get to that point of demonstrate value. So it's a top-down sale, but really quick time to value. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, okay. or like you can kind of demonstrate the value. You can, you can demonstrate like how it works and then you can almost like in the sale, like demo it for somebody. That's a very valuable thing. And it is like, so like it, it improved our products. And, but I think what it did is we like didn't invest in like building a sales team for longer than we should have. Hmm. because we were like, well, I don't know, like PLG is going to take care of it. It's like, no, we actually need to go and spend time and build the muscle and the organization to do this. And so, you know, that's something that PLG has taken us down a road that 
made our product better, but actually didn't advance our sales capabilities for enterprise companies. More of a general point, the value goes through these hype cycles and people get very enamored with something that works and they try to copy it into every different industry. And you kind of have to think about it from a first principles level and say, does this apply to the industry or the customer set or the product that I'm selling? And I think for us, what we discovered was it's just a lot harder to send a wire than a text message, which is maybe an obvious point. Yeah, very <laughs> obvious, but maybe not. Not quite at first glance. I've actually heard someone describe PLG is a pipeline strategy, not a sales strategy, which I thought that was a good way to think about it. I don't know if it's, it sounds like that's kind of what you said also, but you just had a way better, ex deeper explanation. I mean, anything you do that has any sort of engagement with it is a pipeline strategy. So, so yes, <laughs> PLG is definitely a pipeline strategy. To me, like the successful PLG products are products where, or I should say products that would, that PLG should serve well are products that are lighter to kind of experiment with and are easier to get started with. It's just not the case in kind of all things around payments and banking and finance. So you mentioned the product evolving in 2019. Is that when you raised the seed round? We raised the seed round in 2018. So we raised the seed round at the end of, at the end of our YC summer, some demo day. And then you raised the Series A in 2019. Yeah. So when you, you raised the seed round, you said you didn't have any customers yet. How did you convince people without any customers? Because if I'm an investor, I'm looking at the pool of YC, all these charts that are going up and to the right. Modern Treasury didn't have that necessarily. Like, what was the pitch and how did you get people to, to invest? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, uh, a lot of it was really like relationships that we had before. So, for example, the founders of Lending Home were, you know, invested and they were very, they, they were well familiar with the problem. Like the problem spoke to them. They knew us. Um, and those types of connections, if you will, are you build it over years. And whether you have a result uh, of a contract in the first, you know, 60 days or not is kind of less important to those types of investors. We didn't raise from that many uh, folks that we didn't know before. We really were like focused on either people who understood, who we met in the journey, who like understood what the problem was because they had built it at other companies. And maybe they were saying, oh, you know what? I'm not, I don't know what we can be a customer because we've already kind of built it, but like, oh boy, do I understand this problem? <laughs> it's yeah, like a yeah. real problem. And so that that was a subset of, of some of the investors. We kind of did like a party around. And so there wasn't like one major investor, but that was an element of people who uh, we'd worked with before were a part of it. So, but yeah, we raised that, I guess, in August, September of 2018. I think you mentioned throughout 2019-ish, Evolve the Product got some customers and then Chathan at Benchmark ended up leading your Series A. How did that happen? Like, when did you meet them? What was the process of convincing them? We met Chathan through a company that was in YC with us that he led the round for as well, uh, a company called Duffel out of London. And oh, yeah. um, Steve Dome is a good friend, uh, has become a good friend sort of during YC. And so he at some point was visiting from London and he was in San Francisco, came by our office and he just said, hey, you guys should you guys should get to know Chathan because I think there will be uh, an interesting conversation to be had. And so we met uh, probably in this, I think it was probably July, August of 2019, something like that. So we were, you know, now, we were five people, so we'd made two uh, two hires. <laughs> Uh, so okay. we had we we hadn't grown that much as a company. We went from three to five. Uh, it was a year plus into the journey, and we had you know we had probably eight, seven, eight, nine customers at that point. And so the thing that was cool, I think, I don't want to speak for him, but I think one of the things that Chathan appreciated about our customer base is even though they weren't it wasn't that big and they weren't paying us that much money, it was very diverse from the very beginning. We had customers that were in all different industries and even different sizes. Like we had companies that were, I think, at that point we had company. Yeah, we had we had a company 
company that was public that was using us at that point. And we had obviously seed stage companies. And so, uh, and it was across real estate and payroll and benefits and mortgage. And I think we all were sort of going slow and methodical to make, because it was such an important thing for this type of product to not move fast and break things. Yeah. But you could see that it was going to be relevant for a lot of different companies. I think you've said it, I know Chase said it, you go slow to go fast. Right. With YC, it's like, you didn't seem like you're making any progress when you were going through, but you actually made a lot. No, and I think it's actually like whenever you look at one of these like compound kind of charts, right? Like when you look at whatever 1% growth per day or whatever, like the first 80% of it, it's like not very exciting. <laughs> but the thing is like you, you want to, what you want to make sure happens is you're laying a foundation technically and kind of product understanding wise and customer reputationally content, things like that, that, you know, pay dividends later. Were there ever points throughout that process where you're like, I don't know what the right word is, if it's impatient or if you're like, I wish this was going faster. Like, did you ever feel that? And how did you stick with what you were doing and know you're doing something right? I mean, I always feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it is. Yeah, it's uh, there's definitely moments. Where, I mean, I think that there's like, you know, like early on, one of the things that was just like very hard for us is getting getting ourselves taken kind of seriously by some of the banks that we we're trying to partner with and, and work with. You know, it's August. Uh, it's like seven, eight weeks into YC. We're like waiting for an email to come back from some bank. They're on vacation. We're like not funded and don't have a product up and running. So there's definitely moments when you look at and you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but, you know, but I think that like, again, going back to the, the the formative experience for us was that we were the customer that would have been a great customer for this product uh, when we we're letting home. So we just never had any doubt that this was like a product that needs to exist. And so I think our mental model was, well, if they're on vacation, maybe I'll go on vacation, but like, I'm still doing this until it's live, basically. It's when you're getting into B2B, types of things, you have to be okay with some amount of kind of hurry up and wait uh, yeah. in, in your business. When did you say so this was summer of 2019? Did anything happen between anything interesting between then and March of 2020? Or was March of 2020 probably a pretty significant moment? Uh, well, we doubled in size. So we we hired a few other folks um, in engineering and, and others. Others, But yeah, uh, March, we had a, we had an offsite, I think it was February of 2020 in Tahoe. And we brought together like 12, 13 people. It was basically all the full-time people in the company and a couple of advisors and things like that. And we talked about values. We talked about culture. We talked about how we want to grow up as a company. And it was a very fortuitous timing because obviously in March 2020, we stopped doing offsites for a while. Yeah. Uh, and we it was very good that we had, we had managed to do it like right Right then and kind of sneak it in before we went fully remote because we grew a lot more in the subsequent you know 12 months just in terms of headcount mm -hmm. and so having that culture piece set ahead of time was really formative i think what were the most formative things about the culture that you set or advice that you'd give to anyone else thinking about it for us one of the things that we really keep coming back to is there's a certain level of natural curiosity about businesses about the world, but specifically about businesses that you sort of have to have when you're working at Modern Treasury. And that's like something that we kind of try to lean into. There's an element of we help companies build their businesses in this very like nerdy mechanical way. And we we get together and we like whiteboard how they're like, where the money comes from, where does it sit, where does it get transferred to, where does mm -hmm. it, what's the time, you know, what's the cash conversion cycle, all that sort of thing yep. that I think is something that is super fascinating, <laughs> but not for everyone. Some people would find that kind of boring, but like yeah. we, we just find the, this kind of business school kind of case study element of uh, all these different businesses, super interesting. And then we, of course, help them actually kind of design and put it into 
put into motion. But one of the things that we really leaned into is like, how do we as a company both look for that, but also cause it almost inside of the company? So as an example, we we started these coffee breaks, as, as we'll call them. When when March 2020 happened and well went, uh, obviously we're working uh, from from wherever we were. I remember having a few of these Zoom happy hours that were just horrible. Like they're so boring. Like it was awkward. Nobody, like, first of all, happy hours don't work in a way that is kind of like a monologue from somebody. And also like, anyway, so we, I was like, we need to get some free entertainment. We need to start inviting some people to share with us things that they find interesting. And that's kind of taking a life of its own where now we try to have them every like other week or something. And we bring in people who are founders, investors, people that are, you know, work for some of the companies that are customers of ours. Some people who are, you know, have no connection at all to anything except somebody knows them as a friend and they would just have an interesting story for us. And it's one of my favorite favorite parts of because it's just like so I just find it super interesting to just like learn about these things so those types of I think the generalized advice is as a company like figure out what you want to really encourage and then find you know find ways to kind of drive that yeah you just have to be really intentional setting what you want and just living it delivering it yeah you also can't I mean I think as a founder you have some outsized impact but culture is emergent from like the people that you bring into the company and so it's not something that you decide and so it shall be <laughs> yeah it's like you you do decide it the second order effects of your decisions are really what drives it and then I think you guys just ramped up hiring was that did you raise money and you had to hire or was it like customer pull? Like you just needed a bunch more features? Some of the above. I mean, I think we, 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 our product was getting more ready. So we were getting to the point where, um, going back to the, P, the PLG growth was working to some extent. It wasn't maybe working as well as we, as we wanted to, but, but you know, but we were bringing on a bunch of companies. We had to kind of spend time with them. Uh, we had to add new banks. We had to kind of do all kinds of things that were really just a factor of, yes, we had some more money, but more importantly, we had more customers. And so we started kind of bringing on people that had seen this problem before at other places, people who have like had, you know, other careers that were relevant for us, whether they're coming from banks or coming from other kind of tech companies with more scale or, you know, things that things that we needed uh, as we grew. Yeah, content uh, was a big investment for us from a marketing perspective. So we spent a lot of time on how do we make sure that we build the journal and some of the other uh, learn, which is our kind of like uh, investopedia for all kinds of payment ops terms and things like that, that would just bring people to us when they were in that moment, when they're like trying to think about how to build it. And we were like, how do we intercept them? And how do we like make sure that our name is known and how to make sure that they come to us? And before they build too much, they know that there's an option to not build it. <laughs> and they can and they can just, uh, which is, again, it's like a new category. It's a new type of product. So it wasn't yeah. immediately obvious to everybody that you didn't have to build it yourself. Yeah. So what type of content was it? Was it like, hey, here's how to build this. By the way, just use us instead. We just did it. So some of it was just like, we were, well, we were discovering new things as we were going along and we we're just learning about it. And then we were sharing with the world. It's a little bit of the build in public kind of concept. I think it's fascinating, actually. There was like this hole in the content world, I think, because there is so much content on the like an investor questions of is this a good business? Like, is is insurance a good business? Like there's Warren Buffett letters telling you insurance is a good business. But if you're like, I want to start an insurance company, nobody's like, this is how claim payouts work. <laughs> like, this is what you have to build in order for claim payouts to be smooth. This is how reserve accounts should be 
set up. Those types of things that are more mechanical in nature, nobody was writing about. Mm. Uh, and maybe for good reason. Yeah. Um, but what we discovered was when somebody decided, I am starting an insurance company, and it's like, I do want to find out how this works. There was like a hole in the content world that didn't, nobody kind of told them like, this is what you do. Here's like the five steps. And so those were types of, uh, and you can you, you can find them on the Modern Treasury Journal today. If you can, you can get, kind of go back in time and see the, the earliest posts, like some of them were change logs and like things that were actually launching. But then a lot of them were just like, if theoretically you were doing this, here's how you would do this. And here's like the IKEA manual for mm. building your business. Forget about whether it's good or bad or if interest rates change it, how good or bad it is like mechanically, like you, you've decided to do it. Now what? And like that, that was a lot of the content that we put together. Is that necessary almost is finding like a marketing hole or some kind of like go to market where it's like undervalued or you get like super cheap CAC or something like that, like customer acquisition costs are really low. Like you almost need something like that for a startup to work. Yeah, I think it's important in every business. I think that most companies when they get started uh, and, and, and experience like somewhat rapid growth, there is some mechanic that's working. There's a growth loop that's really hitting. And whether it's something that's intentional or discovered by accident, I mean, I, oftentimes there's a platform shift or something changed in the world in general that drives that behavior that all of a sudden people can find. But like, I do think that there is, there is like, if you think about the ingredients that are required for a company to be successful, for a new startup to be successful, obviously a product that solves a problem is step one. Like if you don't have that, I think that's it's hard to scale that. But I do think that distribution is incredibly important. And in a lot of cases, maybe even more important than a product. Sometimes you see companies or you're like, people will say, oh, this, this product isn't actually as good as this other one. Like, why is it winning? And the answer is usually something to do with distribution. So yeah, I think there's, I think there, that um, whether it's CAC and it's like an economic thing, I think for us, it was even less an economic thing and more, how do we intercept the conversation when somebody is actually thinking about these problems? And that's like a big question for a lot of companies, which is, you know, we're not going to convince you to go buy this product out of the blue just like today. But like when you have the problem, we're wanting to think about us. So there's like a brand element to it mm -hmm. that uh, I think is is pretty important. So yeah, but I think that every company that succeeds, if you actually like look at how people sign it, it's not smooth. Sometimes it's like these, you know, there's like wrench turns. People figure out the next, the next thing that lets them grow, or maybe like sometimes the mechanic dies for some reason. But I think that thinking about growth loops and things that drive people and eyeballs and conversations towards you is, I don't want to say it's more important than the product, but it's like only infinitesimally less important. <laughs> mm. Were there any moments where maybe it broke for you guys and you had to figure out how to fix it? Well, I mean, just the, earlier this year, like both kind of conversations initially, it's kind of top of funnel and and kind of bottom of funnel closing conversations are reliant on like a healthy US banking system. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so uh, in March of this year, when like we had a number of bank failures, we saw like a month or two where like a lot of things kind of slowed down and because people were super distracted and they were focusing on other things. It was arguably a good thing kind of medium term, but in the immediate term, like it was definitely a very kind of painful moment, both painful to watch sort of, you know, friends and partners of ours go through some pretty difficult times, but also painful for us in terms of like the impact it had on our pipeline. Yeah. And it happened at a really interesting time too. I guess the story that I heard was you we were at kind of an offsite planning, you know, you weren't really at your computers ready to react to this. What happened? Well, it happened a few days after our SKO. It was actually, so we had our sales kickoff the week when, when the SCB failure was. So 
it was kind of we we had everybody together. We talked about how to you know work as like one one team, one dream, and then we like went across the country, and then immediately like basically were thrown into a moment when we all had to work together in a very coordinated way. You know, I suppose it was well designed <laughs> in a in a in a kind of a team building sense. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a crazy thing to live through and to see up close. Can you kind of take us inside that? day or that week or month, I guess maybe it's still ongoing. Like, what was it like inside of Modern Treasury? How were you helping your customers? Yeah. So to take you back to, I think it was March 9th, if I'm right, that Thursday, like that Wednesday, Thursday, there's basically all of a sudden there started to be a lot more kind of messages and tweets and questions and stuff that were coming from from founders, from customers, from VCs about companies' reliance on SVB and you know, how, how kind of like the single bank question that people were having, which is like, do you have another way to operate your business? Now, remember that most of our clients, it's not just their corporate cash sitting in some account. It's actually very core to the operations of the business. And SAB has been a very good partner of ours from, from the get go. We had a lot of companies that were on, they were primarily banking with SVB, sometimes solely. You know, we really were focused on serving our customers well, but that meant just like a deeper, better integration with SVB for a lot of them. You know, I, there was kind of the snowball effect. One of the things that we had to think about is just in real time, do we want to encourage some sort of panic or not? And there was just like a lot of panic in the air. People were at the time felt kind of unreasonable, but then it's one of these things that's kind of like one of those game theory things where like you, if everybody's freaking out, it doesn't matter if it's a if the reason is right. So yeah, so we're kind of helping customers one off uh, on on Zoom calls and, and phone calls and stuff like that. And then one of the things that was really interesting, so on that Friday at like maybe 10 a.m. Pacific or something like that, the FDIC took over and publicly said SVB is now like taken over by the federal government. And um, it, was a, it was a crazy moment because it's like something that you've read about in books, but you haven't really seen for a long, long time, at least not to a major institution in the U.S., one of the questions that we immediately started getting was from the companies that were working with them, like, like, what's happening to our business? Like, we have to go process certain payments for our business next next week on Monday. Like, what happens? We One of the things that we realized, there's a lot of questions of, well, is the system actually working? Like, can, can I log in? Like, what would happen? One of the things we realized was we had co- connectivity to a lot of different systems at SVB. And so we could actually monitor and see. So, one, so we put together um, a status page, kind of a, a third-party verification, if you will, of what's actually the live status of these things. We felt very sort of helpful in that because we actually had a unique view into some of these systems in a way that other people haven't. Mm-hmm. And also it was very objective and we weren't kind of like trying to grow the panic or, you know, yeah. we, we're trying to kind of provide a useful service. So we started publishing that, kind of updating that every couple of hours. Pretty quickly after, people might remember, there was another bank called Signature Bank that also failed that weekend and the FDIC took over, which is also a bank that we supported. And so we put together that template for the status page for another bank and we started, and again, we kind of kept updating it. And so, you know, as we rolled through the following, call it two, three, four weeks, you started seeing a lot of activity across companies trying to like, uh, explore other banking options, or they're like trying to like make sure that their accounts were in good standing, get funds moving again. And we were kind of like updating and helping companies all throughout. So I think 
there's an element um, from a, just like a crisis communications problem uh, perspective. We were very focused on how do we provide a good, useful service that is uniquely like something that we could put out into the world without causing panic, without causing uh, people to kind of freak out a little more. So, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating thing to live through. And I think just also as a company, as, as a team, like going through something like that together is very formative because we had a lot of Zoom calls on the weekend where everybody's kind of like live updating, like what are the engineers seeing? Is the status update happening or not? How do we actually upload it? Marketing, web copy, all these things starting to kind of move. It definitely galvanizes the team to work a lot closer, more closely together. And I remember that Monday we opened our, so we were based in San Francisco. It's our, our main offices in San Francisco. We opened a New York office the Monday after, and we were going to have a little party and like have like a kind of, a, you know, none of that happened. We just moved in immediately, just got to work because it was like, oh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a good thing this office works. It's a good thing we have Wi-Fi. Okay, get back to work. And um, so we kind of never celebrated moving into our, our New York office because it was literally the the Monday that SUB came back online. So you, you still haven't had the party. We've had plenty of parties. We haven't had, I guess we haven't had a true like office warming party. Maybe the next coffee chat or one of them. Do you want to move into kind of rapid fire, a bunch of different questions? Sure. If you go back to the early days of modern treasury, anything you would do differently? I think we would, I think I would spend more time uh, with customers. I mean, I think that there's nothing that isn't made better by just spending more time with customers. So whatever time I was spending on not just talking to people about how they might want to use our product, like I would not do. Okay, that's fair. So this is a question from someone on your team, uh, Ani Narion. He asked, where is your favorite place to go on a hike? Oh boy, uh, favorite place to go on a hike. I would probably have to say the best like outdoor kind of hiking backpacking trip I've ever done. Uh, and just so happened that it was kind of when I was in high school, so maybe it was like a formative time, but um, was around Ross Lake in North Cascades National Park and uh, did like a, a long backpacking trip kind of up and down the, the sides of Ross Lake. It's a very long lake, kind of starts in the Canadian border and kind of goes south. Is this Washington? Yeah, this is in Washington. It's about three hours from Seattle. Okay, interesting. And that's where you grew up, right? Yeah, I grew up in Redmond, which is 20 minutes east of Seattle. Uh, and then you send these uh, weekly Saturday notes to the company. What are those? Uh, Saturday notes are, again, one of these things that just like an evolved uh, tradition. But when we started being a little bit more distributed and a little bit more, everybody kind of focused in their own little world. It just felt like something that was good, a good practice for me, having kind of sitting in the middle and, and getting little updates here and there from different teams to share back. And like, here's something that is really cool too, that happened this week. Here's a customer we saw and here's somebody who's joining next week. Here's our coffee break kind of guest for next week. So it just evolved. And as we've grown, we're 160 people now still do them. Uh, and that you know, maybe some people read them, some people probably don't, but it's a good way to keep the company kind of updated and, and just kind of share some of the things that are cool that are happening in different parts of the company where maybe if we're all in one office, it would just naturally happen more. But hmm. especially when we're like all remote, it was it was particularly hard, I think, to like highlight those things. So you kind of like synthesize everything going on and fill people in on maybe the things that are most important or you thought were good lessons or learnings and just keep information flowing. Correct. It's almost like a little investor update sort of thing, but it's like across the company, like, hey, and it's, you know, kudos to somebody who's done something really good. I mean, it's a little bit more team focused, but it is, here's how, if there's a week that goes by and you can't point to ways in which your company is like better off or has grown or has anything's changed, um, could be could be a bad thing too. It doesn't have to be a good thing, but there has to be some delta after you spend a whole week. Otherwise, Otherwise, what are you doing? And I've also noticed you seem to do a lot of reading. You mentioned earlier, you really like studying business and learning all these different lessons. Do you have a favorite business story or book? Favorite business story or book? I've, I have a 
ton of them. While you're thinking, I'll also give a shout out. You have a Medium page. I think if you just search Dimitri Dadimov, you'll find Dimitri Dadimov Medium. You'll find you have, I think you do reviews every year. You have a, you have a bunch in there. Do you have a favorite that stands out? Yeah, I think um, one that just jumped out at me is um, Robert Caro is this writer that writes these massive biographies of folks. And he has a little tiny book called Working. And it's about his way of working. And, you know, he's famous for spending like 10 years doing research before he writes a book. And so he knows like everything about something. And it's like super well written. And he focuses on like the descriptions and the place and like the title and the rhythm. And like it's fiction level writing in a nonfiction book. And so anyway, his long form kind of books are really good. But I specifically think working is interesting because you know i think there's like a there's a charlie munger quote that's like life's all about taking a simple idea and but taking it seriously and i think that that's something that he like he kind of does in in his life and i think that it goes for like startups or for really any kind of like thing that is like around craft and you have to kind of focus on it for a long time like i think that mentality is really good and he just will spend i mean he's just like an extreme 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 version of that <laughs> so working by robert caro Working. Okay. And then last question, you've probably studied or read about a lot of founders and CEOs over time. Do you have a, doesn't have to be current, can be all time historical story too. I think, I mean, there's, there's, it's hard to just pick one, but I mean, I think that the, the people that I really admire, the people who like go out and build something that just takes a long time to kind of bake and people look at it and they don't quite know like what it is for a while. And I think that, uh, I mean, Warren Buffett is a perfect example of this where I don't think that people in the 1960s were like held, you know, Berkshire in high regard, but yeah, you know, it's a failed um, company, it, right? Prove them, prove, prove them wrong. I think Jeff yeah. Bezos has elements of that as well, where a lot of people thought that Amazon just like burning money and it was like no actually yep. building warehouses there's there's lots of examples of that craig mccaw's like that as well he started at mccaw sailor which became at&t wireless but he was sort mm. of the first person to say you know what we're gonna go and build a bunch of towers uh and put cell phone antennas on top of them nobody thought that was a business that made any sense and then you know proved, proved them wrong yeah pretty important nowadays all the different companies that we've mentioned in the last you know hour and a half have all relied on cellular data in some capacity I actually have another question. Do you have any questions for me at all on anything? Well, I'm curious about you kind of started investing and kind of grew this sort of like meme way to kind of get get in front of founders, get in front of investors, et cetera. And the world has gone through all these different changes just in the short time that, you know, we've been in business as a company, yeah. like five years. And I just think about the world of 20, like 18, 19, 20, 21. So it's like every year is completely different. It's like there's a pandemic, there's no pandemic. There's yeah. the markets are crazy. The markets are not crazy. Like there's bank failures, there's no bank failures. So I'm curious, how do you think about the next year, given how fast things are changing and moving? And, you know, we were just talking about superconductors uh, right before we started recording. Like, yeah. that was like a hype cycle that was about, you know, 10 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about investing and and kind of like your what you should be spending your time on? For me, I guess the way I think about it, just broadly what I'm interested in is similar to I'm just really interested in learning about businesses and how things work. And I don't ever think I would be able to start a modern treasury. but I, I think I'd be good at investing. And then when I think about just what's my advantage, you know, I don't live in San Francisco. I'm there maybe every couple months, spend a week there, but I live in Michigan. So for me, it's almost like a internet first approach. It's almost like a PLG approach where initially, like, this was probably 2017, serious content online, Twitter, almost saw this opening in the market when you talk about like different channels that are maybe undervalued or like where the opportunity was. It's kind of like, huh. 
people love memes, but everyone takes themselves super seriously, all these VCs. So what if I just make some memes? And then I, you know, I, I kind of tilted towards that. And I was still kind of doing more serious stuff, but the memes almost took over. And that's what how a lot of people got to know me. And I still do them, but now it's like, all right, I should probably start doing some more serious stuff too, right? Like I've been doing this for like five, six years now. I kind of think about it as like started with Twitter only. And I was like blog, then added a newsletter, podcast, obviously make it, these are recordings in video. This goes up on YouTube. We'll put clips. So I just kind of think about it as like, how can I do these things that just leverage my time and founder's time to help them? It's kind of like a PLG approach to VC in a way. I still remember for whatever reason, there's a clip that you did. And it was probably 2020 or 21 of like a VC that's like trying to take a meeting with a founder, but like their Tesla keeps like yep. one of their Teslas or something keeps uh, being stuck or not charging or something. And, yep. and the they gardener. keep like interrupting and going back. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly, the gardener, like the nanny's driving the other Tesla or something. Anyway, yep. it was just, it was just, you know, spot on for some experiences that founders have with VCs in some cases. Yeah, well, and that's always what I think about. It's just like, what if founders actually care about, and what are they, what are they interested in, and how can you meet them where they are as an early stage investor? I'm probably not going to show up to a conversation with you and outsmart you on anything that you're doing. And if I do, I probably shouldn't be investing in your company. Like, you should be the expert, not me. So for me, it's more about just thinking of ways to meet founders and build trust and. Ultimately, like my pitch as an investor is, hey, I'm going to, we're going to have like a relationship. We'll work together. I'll be really responsive, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to mess anything up. I'm going to get out of the way. When you need my help, I can try, but I don't really want to promise I'm going to like build your company or save all these problems that you have. And it's actually not, it's not really the best pitch in a lot of cases, but in some cases it actually is an interesting pitch for some founders. So I guess that's kind of where I'm at today. I mean, my, my strategy, it's kind of slowly evolving how I think about investing. And the world also changes around you. So you have to be responsive to that. I mean, I just kind of think about what am I good at? What's my competitive advantage? Lean into it. I don't only do things that I think I'm good at. Invest in things that I understand. So when we talk about hype cycles, it's I kind of think about it as like, what's the application of this new technology and solving a business problem or, you know, having higher margins in some case, or, you know, does it unlock more revenue or cut costs? And what kind of new wedge does that create to create a new business? Or does like a new industry open up to using software now? because of this? Can you acquire and serve customers cheaper and more efficiently? That's usually how I'll approach like some new hype wave. I'm like, what's the real problem being solved? And it's like a real, yeah, it's like a business that you can create here, which sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't. And also sometimes I probably read it wrong, but it's just, it's like a learning thing for me, but it's fun. I like it. That's awesome. Well, thank you for inviting me on. This was super fun. I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for tuning into the PL. I want to take a quick moment to ask for any feedback on the show. Guests, topics, format, pacing, lighting, video quality, editing, anything is fair game. Leave a comment, shoot me an email, DM me on Twitter or LinkedIn, or even send me a carrier pigeon. I'll read it all. If you don't want to miss an episode, follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to the newsletter in the show notes to get new episodes in your inbox the moment they drop. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time.